A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, analyse the Ukrainian military's drone strike on a Crimean oil depot over the weekend, and we explore the idea of a military shaping operation ahead of a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 2nd of May, one year and 67 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, and joining us from the Telegraph's Ukraine live blog is foreign reporter Maiden Nanu. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi David, hi everybody. So yeah, we'll leave the weekend stuff for a moment, but we'll start with comments out of the White House. This is John Kirby, White House National Security spokesperson. He said that Russia's attempt at the offensive in the Donbass has failed and the Russian armed forces have suffered 100,000 casualties in the last five months of fighting over Bakhmut and the other areas around there. Remember, casualties are dead, wounded, missing and taken prisoner. But he did say, this was he was basing this on US intelligence estimates, he said that number included more than 20,000 dead, half of them from the Wagner mercenary group, and a large slice of that would be the convicts that we've seen Yevgeny Prigozhin going around jails recruiting on these six-month contracts of six-month service in Ukraine, and then your, your convictions are quashed if you're still alive. So Mr Kirby said, last December, Russia initiated a broad offensive across multiple lines of advance, including towards Vuladar, Avdivka, Bakhmut and Kremina. Those areas, that what, what he's describing there, is an arc of about 160 k's heading so from Vuladar in the north, south, then southwest, and that arc passing just to the west of the city of, of Donetsk. So he's talking about, he said, the broad offensive across multiple lines of advance on that arc. He went on and said, most of these efforts stalled and failed. Russia has been unable to seize any strategically significant territory. Underlining what we've been saying recently, that whatever, there's two very different views about Bakhmut. Russia views it very differently to Ukraine. Russia views it as 
ground to be taken. Ukraine views the battle there, I think, more through through the effort to 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 wear down Russian forces and not allow them to be redeployed elsewhere and dig in for the for the anticipated offensive. So Mr. Kirby is saying that there's no strategically significant territory been taken. I think he's largely talking Bakhmut and Avdivka. But just on Bakhmut, there are also reports that Ukrainian units have pushed Russia back from some areas. They are largely contained in the last sort of northwest corner of the city. Uh, it's a sort of diamond-shaped city, really, with a very main roads running north-south and east-west. And um, Ukraine are largely just holding on to the northwest portion of it. But Colonel General Alexander Sersky, who is the Ukraine's commander of all the eastern forces, speaking on Telegram, he said the situation in Bakhmut is quite difficult. Again, master of understatement. But he went on, at the same time, in certain parts of the city, the enemy was counterattacked by our units and left some positions in recent days. Now, it, we think Ukraine has still got control of the last road heading out to the to the west, the resupply route that they've dubbed the Road of Life. We think they've still got control of it. There were reports Russia said they had control of it. The control is very different to physically owning it. If you can cover it by fire, artillery and direct fire, that is obviously very significant. But unless you actually have it in your possession and you actually have troops and, and vehicles, tanks, on it, you cannot say that you've got total control of it. So Ukraine still seem to have control of that road, albeit it's it's a it's you know very, very dangerous route to take for resupply. But Sergei Cherovati, who's a spokesman for Ukraine's military eastern sector, he said the Russians have been talking for weeks about taking control of the road of life. But thanks to the military special forces and artillerymen, the defense forces have not allowed the Russians to cut our logistics. So that's Bakhmut. Now, one other bit before I, before I take a little pause. There are unconfirmed reports of, that Ukraine has hit a Russian village in the Bryansk region, which borders Russia. So these reports from the local governor, the local Russian governor, came out this morning on social media. So Tuesday morning, social media. They said in the morning, the armed forces of Ukraine shelled the village of Kurkovichi in the Stardubsky municipal district. So that is the Bryansk governor speaking. He said there were no casualties and as a result of the shelling, fire broke out in one of the households. All emergency services are on site. Now this came from Reuters. Uh, They're not able to independently verify the report and they note Ukraine almost never publicly claims responsibility for attacks either inside Russia or Russian controlled territory of Ukraine. But I mean there are reports over the weekend which we'll talk about a bit later of of some other activity a train being derailed due to a blast so so whether or not it's it's Ukrainian regular forces or or partisans we we don't know but that uh, that's just happened from this morning and uh before I will take a pause there before we talk about the weekend Thanks very much for that, Dom. Yeah, well, Dom, we'll come back to you to talk us through some of the big events this last weekend. But first, delighted to be joined by Maidna Nanu, our foreign reporter. Maidna, you've been running the Ukraine Live blog on the Telegraph's website. Everybody should go check it out. It runs every single day. Maidna, you're running it today. You've picked out three stories to talk us through. What would you like to talk about first? So there's a story over the weekend, which is that Pope Francis said that the Vatican is involved in a peace mission to try and end the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. 
On his visit to Hungary, he spoke with Prime Minister Viktor Orban and he also spoke with a bishop representing the Russian Orthodox Church in Budapest. And he said he discussed the situation in Ukraine with them both. And he said, you know, we didn't just talk about Little Red Riding Hood, we spoke of all of these things and everyone is interested in the road to peace. He didn't give any details on what he said the mission was. He said that he was willing to do everything that has to be done and the details of the mission weren't public, but he would reveal it when details were public. There's also an interesting story you've picked out ahead of Wimbledon, the the uh, British Tennis Championship. We've obviously spoken quite a few times about international sports and sports people and their reactions and the reactions of international bodies to their participation after the war in Ukraine. Can you tell us about Russia, Russian tennis player Veronika Kudametova? Yes, so has said that she's going to remove the logo of Veronika Kudamatova, her sponsor, which is Tatneft, which is a Russian oil and gas company, from her kit so that she can compete at Wimbledon this year. So you'll remember last year, Wimbledon actually banned Russian and Belarusian players due to the invasion. But this March, they kind of adopted their stance and it said that they would accept them as neutral athletes. So they basically said that players will be banned from expressing any support for the invasion and they can't receive any funding from the Russian states or the Belarusian states. So Tatneft was actually sanctioned by the EU last June. And she's kind of, you know, said, I think I'm not allowed to play with a badge from Russia and I know that. So she's going to take the badge off. And just one final story from you, Maidenet. Again, all the way through the last year, we've talked about companies leaving Russia. There's been a new announcement today Um, which might come as a bit of a surprise for some people. Yeah, so this is on a slightly different note. Match Group, which owns Tinder, Hinge and Plenty of Fish, obviously dating apps, has said it's going to quit Russia by the end of June and it says it needs, it's citing the need to protect human rights. And it said it's going to restrict its services and completely withdraw from the Russian market. So this is quite in step with what lots of other digital services providers did at the beginning of the invasion. So Spotify and Netflix pulled out of Russia last February. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty in line with what other companies have done. Well, thank you very much, Maiden. We'll let you get back to the, to the live blog. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and speak to us. Dom Nichols, can we come back to you? We said we'd park some of the updates from the weekend, but there's an awful lot been happening. Can you talk us through what happened and their importance? Yeah, so obviously it's been a few days since we last spoke. So let's stay in the Bryansk region of Russia, borders borders U- Ukraine, one of the western regions of Russia. The governor there, local governor that we quoted before he's talked about a freight train being derailed due to an explosive device he said uh, an unidentified explosive device went off as a result of which a locomotive of a freight train derailed he's writing on on telegram he said it happened between Bryansk and Unetja um he said there's no casualties uh, this area is 40 miles ish north of the border in Ukraine now russian railways that is the well the national operator he said they say the incident that occurred at about quarter past 10 in the morning local time or Russian time. That covers, what does it cover, seven time districts, I think, time zones, Russia? Anyway, Moscow time, quarter past 10 in the morning, said seven freight wagons were derailed, locomotive caught fire. Now, on the same day, up in St. or just outside St. Petersburg, power lines are also blown up 
And FSB, the local FSB security service, said that was an act of sabotage. So unlikely to be connected. These are hundreds of miles apart. But speaks of uh, either homegrown homegrown activity or something something you know, Ukraine based uh, Ukraine armed forces more more so I would have thought the south St Petersburg is quite is quite some somewhere away but no interesting to watch now the other the other big thing that happened over the weekend you may have seen imagery on social media so we're in um, Sevastopol now in Crimea a Ukrainian drone strike targeted an oil depot and this came from Ukraine's military spokesman in the region, Natalia Gumnyuk. She said that they were targeting Russian logistics to, to undermine morale and spread panic. She said the work is preparatory to the large-scale offensive that everyone expects. Now, I mean, it's very striking imagery, images on, on social media. The whole oil depot has gone up. We've got no reports of casualties, but it is, it is significant. It made a, made a big old mess. And you'll remember... Last year, so Sevastopol has come under periodic strike, but period but innovative, if you, if you like. So last year, uh, we saw the um, the maritime surface drones that that went into seemed seemingly got, went into Sevastopol, and uh, as a result of that, Russia withdrew its main submarine force, the Kilo class subs, to Novorossiysk, about 180 miles away, back in Russia on the Russian coast. Now. Following the attack, this was on Saturday, the fuel depot went up. Russian media was showing traffic jams over the Kirsch Bridge as uh, residents and holidaymakers were, were trying to get out of there. And Ukraine said that the the, 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 the attack would have destroyed 40,000 tonnes of fuel. Russia, you know, surprisingly did confirm it was a drone strike. And they said nobody's been injured in the attack. Sorry, I, I hadn't, hadn't twigged that bit. But other strikes over the weekend. So there were airstrikes Overnight Sunday, Monday, this is from Ukrainian sources, they reported nine Tu-95, these are the Tupolev Tu-95 and Tu-160 strategic bombers, big old, big old bombers, took off from Murmansk, which is, you know, right up in the north, up, up well, well inside the Arctic Circle, uh, Murmansk, and, uh, and also from near the Caspian Sea, and they launched 18 KH-101 and KH-555 cruise missiles. Now, Ukraine says it shot down 15 of those 18, but three of them got through. One of them hit the um, so the, the town of Pavlograd, which is right in basically right in the centre of the of the country. Hit a chemical plant there, caused a caused a massive explosion. There are a number of Pavlograds. If you're going to look on Google Maps, this there, this one is about 40 k's east of Dnipro in the in the centre centre east ish of of the country. Civilians were killed, at least 40 injured, homes destroyed. The Russian MOD claimed yesterday that the strikes targeted. Ukrainian military industrial objects and successfully disrupted the production of military resources. I mean, it did hit a chemical plant. What that plant was doing, we're not we're not sure. But other things were hit as well, and uh, and uh, civilian infrastructure and civilian housing was killed. Now, Russian military bloggers, you know that that sort of community, they've said that the missiles struck Ukrainian air defence systems, a transportation hub. I mean, they've they've gone you know they've gone big on it. There's no suggestion that air defence was hit. And in terms of a transportation hub, I mean, I don't know what they mean by that. If they're talking about a bus station, perhaps, then then that might be accurate. But, you know, who's using the bus station is going to be civilians. Uh, in response, Ukraine's Air Force spokesperson, Yuri Inyat, who we've quoted a number of times, he just made the point that actually these Tupolevs, I mean, they're massive. They're big old st- strategic beasts. And for them to carry far fewer missiles than their maximum load. Mr. Inya is suggesting that, that this is indicative of Russia's continued struggle to 
to get munitions through. So that was in the in in Pavlograd. Then elsewhere, Chernihiv, the Chernihiv region, so the north of the country, northeast of Kiev, very close to the or it borders Russia, but the, the strike close to the Russian border hit a school, and a fourteen year old boy was killed. So that's the missile strikes. Now this morning, Russia's defense minister Sergei Shoigu, he's quite unusually, he said the army had all the ammunition it needed for use on the battlefield this year, but he's called on major rocket producer in Russia to urgently double its output of advanced missiles, which does speak to this, this um, the lack of precision guided missiles, as we've reported on for months now, and these efforts to get to get them from Iran and elsewhere, but principally Iran. Now, sure, you said that Moscow had taken steps to boost its arms production to support the war. Our words, he obviously wouldn't say the word war. But he did say that Russian forces' success on the battlefield would, in his words, largely depend on the timely replenishment of weapons and other military equipment, which I thought was quite quite telling. Shoyu went on, the country's leadership has set defence enterprises the task of increasing the pace and volume of production in a short time. This was, public, it was a transcript published on Russian MOD. Now, we've been talking about these, these weapons for a long time, and Western officials in some of the, the briefings that, I'm, that I attend have spoken about it and say that, that Russia, what they do is they, they, the pulse of these attacks, these, the waves of these air attacks, it's now, what is it, every, every six weeks or so. The attack on Kiev last Thursday was the first in 51 days, for example. The, the pulse has got wider, or the time between the pulses has got, has got, got longer, and partly because it's assessed they just they're just running out of missiles they're trying to get them in from elsewhere principally iran as i said but they are they are having trouble to get them through but when they do get them through the view from the western officials i've spoken to is that russia then sort of uses them in in one big one big blast they just they don't they can't plan properly they don't i mean even a 6 year old understands the the delayed gratification do you want one sweet today or two tomorrow you know even a six-year-old will go well, i'll tell you what I'll, I'll go for the two tomorrow but russia doesn't seem to be doing that they they use these missiles when they can and why why is that i mean if there was coherent sensible professional military planning forget forget the politics for a moment forget putin and all that lot but if there's sensible military planning and backmoot is so important to them as it seems to be because they've expended 20,000 lives dead and however many else the, the White House is saying, then why are these missiles, when they've got them, why are they not being integrated in some form of attack to try and break through in that area that they have shown is is important to them? Instead, they are continuing to back this failed strategy of just going after the, the infrastructure, which to me shows a still, even after a year, Russia's inability to plan. They are not incorporating air into ground offensives. It shows a lack of ideas. They are going after the infrastructure and there's no sign that that's working, no sign of Ukrainian society buckling and demanding a change from their political leadership. And and it just shows this this strategy and the and Bakhmut with however many thousand dead since December just shows yet again that that Putin does not care for the casualties as long as it's grinding its way block by block west and it's down to we think just a you know, a block at a time over a week ish in back moot he's, he's happy to pay the bill so that that just speaks again of a of a moral vacuum so you know none of this is good news for for ukraine at a tactical level of course but i think there are there are strengths they can take from this that 
Yes, the supply lines are still getting through from, like say, Iran, North Korea, elsewhere, but they're just not using them in a in a sensible manner. This is not how you should be waging war. So the air defense is flowing into Ukraine. They're saying they shot down 15 of the 18 cruise missiles over the weekend. Of course, those other three caused damage, death and destruction. But air defense is increasing. Air defense is getting in there. And Russia just seems to be backing the wrong horse here. They're just they're just getting these things in and then using them all in a big splurge instead of thinking about it and doing it properly. So if there's any crumb of comfort that Ukraine can take out of these strikes for the weekend, I would suggest that's it, that they, that they, are, still, they are still not learning lessons from the battlefield. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Dom, we'll come back to you later. I've got a few questions about some of the Ukrainian attacks we've seen over the past few days. But Francis Sternley, can we come to you next? Would you like to comment on anything we've talked about so far? Or what are the other diplomatic subjects you've been looking at? Thanks, David. Before I turn to some other diplomatic updates, I do just want to reflect on a couple that Maynard was touching on there and which she's been updating the live blog with. I think the Pope mission story is interesting and I register quite a lot of concern, anxiety this morning with uh, regarding the conversations that he's been having with Viktor Orban. I think that's understandable in the context of some of the Pope's previous remarks. In June last year, regular listeners will recall that he said that the Ukraine war was perhaps somehow provoked an allusion, I think, to the argument that this was in least in part due to NATO expansion. He also suggested that some minority groups of soldiers had behaved worse than others in the invasion in Ukraine, which some took as him trying to keep the Russian army as somehow separate from other units in the country, which, of course, many would challenge given the war crimes that we have seen since. So there is, as I say, reason to be, I think, concerned that perhaps if there is a likelihood of some kind of peace mission taking place, that it may be looking for a softening of a position of Western unity on the likelihood of of the need for Russia to be outright defeated. And I think fundamentally, we are still at a stage in this war where the two positions held by Ukraine and by Russia are irreconcilable. I mean, for Ukraine and many in the West, the issue is clear cut. The aggressor has to be defeated. Anything less than that is politically and morally unjust. And yet, in a more favourable light for the Pope, the He did label the Holodomor, the famine caused by the Kremlin in the 1930s, a genocide. That was something that upset Russia a lot. So I'm not trying to suggest that he's in some way uh, a Putin sympathiser or anything like that. But this is a challenging issue and one that I think it's very difficult to see where they're being much manoeuvre on. But nonetheless, is interesting. And the fact that he's gone public about this now, I think, speaks to the increasing dialogue that is taking place and for many concerning dialogue about trying to find a solution to this war at this stage, perhaps apart because of the perception of stalemate, which I've talked about before, which is why, of course, China is on manoeuvres now as well. Um, But anyway, just the other story I wanted to touch on that Maynard was touching on earlier is around the issue of Tinder leaving Russia. And of course, there'll be many that will be welcoming this and the other companies that have been operating in Russia and have chosen to remain there have been strongly condemned and criticised for still actioning there. But I do think it's also important to highlight that, as has been happening in many cases, when these companies pull out, quite often the products still get through in some way. And I've been very struck by increasing evidence of what's happening with McDonald's and Zara and other places where effectively the property is by their leaving, the property is then taken over. And a sort of fake version of McDonald's or Zara are set up. They operate under a completely different name, but the 
optics look very similar. In many cases, the, the produce is the same, provided by the same suppliers. And so the impact of these companies leaving is greatly reduced in terms of the optics and arguably its political and economic effectiveness. And so I think it is just worth mentioning that, that I think the impact of this is probably fairly minimal, ultimately, in terms of what it does. Now, that may be different for technology. It's true because of the app software particularly, but quite often this gap is being filled by Russian alternatives. And in many ways, perhaps that emboldens the the Putin state and even enables it to profit from these countries leaving. So, yes, I, I think it's just a nuanced point. This is one that is important to reflect on. But anyway, the other couple of stories I did just want to mention is that Ukraine's Human Rights Commissioner has advised people in territories currently occupied by Russia to accept Russian passports in order to survive. That's after a new decree signed by Putin on Thursday stating that Ukrainians living in occupied territory who refuse Russian passports could be forced out of their homes. So in response to that, as I say, Ukraine is saying that they should accept Ukrainian, sorry, Russian passports and very strong terms. I would advise you to accept a Russian passport and make the decision for yourself to survive. This is the most important thing. We understand that this is happening under pressure, under physical pressure. So take your passport, survive and wait for us to liberate this territory. And I sense from this that a a core worry is that those who refuse will be identifiable and may be imprisoned or forcibly removed from the territory. And thinking long term, Russia is trying to make these territories Russian as quickly as possible. And if it's able to bring in as many of its own people as it can, which we know it's doing, whilst removing those who strongly identify with Ukraine, then all the better from their point of view. And evidently, Ukraine would much rather that those people who remain there for their own safety, as well as for the critical role of these people, may play in the long term in showing the world that these territories are not Russian, but Ukrainian in terms of their population makeup. And I think that's a, a critical motive here, is ensuring that there are people in the territories who don't leave and who are not arrested by Russia, so that when the time comes of their hopeful liberation, or when the conversations are happening around these territories, that Ukraine can continuously say that these people are, that there are many people in these territories who are Ukrainian and who identify as Ukrainian. And so this is, again, an example of where it's quite a nuanced position that's being held by Ukraine, but it's important to understand some of the context of this when explaining it. And so an interesting development and one, of course, that we'll be monitoring quite closely. Uh, Just the other story I also wanted to touch on is that a top UN trade official is expected to travel to Moscow this week amid the diplomatic push to ensure a deal allowing for the safe export of Ukrainian grain from Black Sea ports. Of course, an ongoing saga this. Russia has repeatedly said that it won't allow the deal to be extended beyond May 18th unless unless Western countries remove obstacles to Russian grain and fertilizer exports. It's yet another example of how Russia are using this grain deal as huge leverage. And the fact that the UN are now going there to try and engage with Russia, of course, is not great optics, as it isn't, of course, with the UN Security Council being headed by Russia at the moment. But nonetheless, they deem it vital in order to ensure that this grain deal proceeds. And of course, you could argue that it's in Ukrainian interest for it to proceed as well for economic reasons. But nonetheless, it is a troubling issue and one that Russia is using for full diplomatic effect, which is why I mention it. The fact that it's the UN going there, I think, speaks volumes. That's where we are in the diplomatic space, David. 
Thanks very much, Francis. Maidner has just messaged us from the Foreign Desk Live to say that uh, the Kremlin has said it is not aware of the Pope's peace mission for Ukraine. So that's just, I think, a bit of breaking news. Francis, can I ask you just to have a quick look at that while we go to Dom? Dom Nichols, you've spoken a few times over the past year on the idea of shaping operations in a military sense. So operations conducted ahead of an offensive. The attack on the refineries in Sevastopol over the weekend struck me as a, almost a perfect example of that. Could you talk, talk to us a little bit about shaping operations with, with that in mind? And ju- I, th- I think that might be the best way to sort of make this concept, make this concept real for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, it's not a new concept. Shaping operations, as you've just described, these are, these are operations before the main event, if you like, that are seeking to... You are seeking to have that subsequent fight on your terms. You're seeking to present multiple problems to the enemy so that it makes your life easier when when the main battle starts. And I, I, I hesitate to... I'm grasping for a better phrase there because it implies that shaping operations are, are non-violent. I mean, you, you talked about this attack in Sevastopol. That, that could well be part of a shaping operation or it could just be sensible military logic to, to wear down the Russia's logistic chain. But... You know, I, I wanted. I don't want people to go away thinking that shaping operations are, are you know, some information operations here in the in the newspapers and uh, some moving some soldiers over there with some inflatable tanks as deception. I mean, shaping operations can be exceptionally violent because you are trying to wrest the initiative from the situation, if not from the enemy. You're trying to take control of the situation. And that often, usually, involves fighting for it because the enemy know what you're trying to do and they're trying to do exactly the same to you. So shaping operations can be exceptionally violent. And, of course, if you do them right, you want them, you want the enemy to think that, that that's your main attack. You want them to think that it's a deception or you might be using a deception as part of a shaping operation. So all of these things combined means that it's very difficult to point at something and go, aha! that's a shaping operation. I'm going to ignore that or I'm just going to apportion a small part of my resource to, to take care of it if you're the if you're the enemy. So it, it is difficult to do. It's more a conceptual framework than an actual than actual event on the ground. Often these these things might be so a shaping operation might not very readily draw through to an obvious operational or strategic objective so you might see something happening and think well that's a bit weird why are they doing that that doesn't really that doesn't really do an awful lot and going back on what we were talking about earlier on these russian missile strikes against ukraine's critical national infrastructure you might say well that's a that's not an end in and of itself that's a shaping operation to try and get them to the negotiating table probably a poor example because it it, it could be it could be both and they i think they both failed anyway um but it just as i say you're trying to gain maximum advantage before you fully engage so it's it's an idea as old as the hills but as is the military way of these things it in doctrinal terms i doctrine as in that the stuff that you actually get taught it was a fairly new concept it came around 20 odd years ago to actually put a name on it put a, a name to a thing that you were already doing and up till then, kind of caught the military off guard because we used to talk about phase one of an operation being the break-in battle. That's when you that's when you try and bust into the position or the country or what have you. And phase two is the envelopment and blah 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 blah. And then when when we came up with this idea that uh, well, actually there might be a there might be a phase before all that when you need to shape the environment and, and influence in a different way. And we've we've already used the first number, so what are we going to call it? So actually, shaping operations rather delightfully are known as phase zero 
because, you know, I mean, God knows what happens. If they come up with something before shaping operations, they're going to have to go into the, into negative. So God knows what's going to happen. But, I mean, if you think about, seriously for a moment, think about what, what these things are trying to do. You're trying to influence the enemy forces on the battlefield, i.e. you're trying to influence them to, to go away or to scatter themselves over a large a large area. But where do you get your freedom of movement from or where does the enemy get their, their freedom of movement from in order to to resist that? Well, they get that most directly from their from their domestic politics, from their political leaders. Sometimes, you know, in autocracies, the military and the politics is the same the same structure, maybe even the same person. But they get their freedom of movement from that and from international society to a certain degree, a small degree, about what is right and wrong in, in war. But but largely it's the domestic politics. So shaping operations is seeking to have an have a, ultimately have an impact on the enemy force, but maybe not straight away you're trying to influence other things you're trying to influence the so ukraine for example will be trying to influence russian domestic politics they'll be trying to shore up their own domestic situation they'll be trying to influence international security the united nations the you know nato etc etc so shaping operations take many many different um, forms it's not always directly on the battlefield but it is it's designed to give you the maximum freedom of maneuver freedom of movement so that when you decide to launch your campaign you've got the the most options available to you you've got the best advantage over the enemy and like i say these these things can take months or years sometimes you could argue that russia was doing a shaping operation since the 2014 invasion with with what it's doing what it was doing with politics in the east of ukraine and in crimea and internationally so this is happening all the time it's not just a hard military big green machine activity a lot of it happens in the through information and through news and influencing people and politics a lot of it happens well away from the from the field of combat that you are ultimately interested in it happens in the international sphere so think about what russia's been doing internationally and influencing through africa and other un general assembly members for example so it it is all that ultimately so that when the fight comes it is on your terms and it is the easiest you could possibly make it but it can start well 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 in advance and miles away conceptually and physically from the actual battlefield itself that's fascinating thank you very much dom francis what will you be looking at today and tomorrow thanks david i want to end with an interview actually conducted by vice news it's with Maria Vavabilova, Putin's Commissioner for Children's Rights, somebody who, of course, will be familiar to regular listeners. She, along with Putin, have been charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court in relation to the invasion of Ukraine. She stands accused of the mass abduction of Ukrainian children, as many as 19,000, according to the Ukrainian authorities. And she's been placed on a sanctions list by the United States, the United Kingdom and the European Union. This interview is proving controversial, to say the least, with some arguing that there's nothing to be gained by giving this lady a platform. I'm not sure I agree with that. The questions put to her are hard and unflinching, and her body language is revealing, as is the shallowness, I would argue, of her justifications relating to the kidnapping of children. For one, when Vice News asks her if she's a war criminal, she replies rather flippantly, It's funny, I'm a mother, that says it all. A war criminal? What are you talking about? And she then seeks to justify her actions by saying, and I quote, the situation was tense, the children were constantly in a very difficult psychological state, and when the parents were offered to send them on vacation for free, of course, everyone immediately agreed 
with joy. Well, for one, vacation is a, a an interesting term to use, one that is extremely contestable for obvious reasons. But not only that, the idea that everybody immediately agreed with joy is simply wrong. Uh, reports uh, of parents not being aware their children have been taken, of children not wanting to leave the country. It's just a blatant fabrication. As well as this, Vice point out that under the Geneva Conventions, of which Russia is still technically a signatory, children can only be deported on humanitarian grounds temporarily and should be a third-party country, not the warring aggressor. So the very fact that she says this is in itself in contravene, contravenes the Geneva Convention and arguably makes the interview worthwhile. But for me, the most revealing and chilling moment in the interview is when she rejects the accusation of deportation and brainwashing outright. She says, These are children from those regions that have recognised themselves as Russia. These are Russian-speaking children. These are children and parents who have expressed a desire to become one big Russia. For one, these children, and she admits there are at least 380 of them, are from what she calls Russia's new territories, which were forcibly annexed. The idea that they recognise themselves is blatantly false. But more disturbing, to me at least, is the idea that these children have expressed a desire to become one big Russia. To try and justify these actions by the words of the children themselves is is beyond appalling. We should surely be trying to live in a world where we don't categorise children by their nationality and by their faith. They are children, full stop. And so, as I say, I think this is incredibly revealing and troubling, the fact that she, she says this. As to the ethics of the interview, I understand those who believe that it shouldn't have gone ahead because it gives a platform to for her to spread her disinformation. But I, I personally learned quite a lot from this interview and I get no sense that the interviewers have had to hold back in order to secure it. There is a long tradition of journalists speaking to such figures. One famous example from here in the UK is when distinguished TV journalist Alan Wicker interviewed Francois Duvalier, the dictator of Haiti, a very famous interview with somebody that the world had never really seen and heard from. And that was an example of, of where it can be as informative as much for what these figures don't say as for what they do. And I would argue that all information is is valuable if one has a free hand to attain it and if it's a worthy cause. And whilst this interview is disturbing, I think it's it's interesting and revealing. And so I would, for those reasons, point listeners to it. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols, what are your final thoughts? Well, thanks, David. I've been thinking about the this suggestion, this this direction, if you like, certainly permission from Ukraine to its people in regions that are held by Russia at the moment for them to take Russian passports saying you have to survive. And it chimes with something we spoke about many, many months ago, which was the American experience in the Vietnam War and the the I don't know, mechanism, if you like, the the policy sounds too strong, but this the return with honor idea, as in saying to their to the, to their captured soldiers, sailors and airmen that um, everyone has a breaking point for a, somebody in, in who's a prisoner of war, it might be through pain under interrogation or what have you or in this case for civilians it might be that you are living under the uh, under an opponent's regime and and this suggestion that you just do what you need to do to survive but don't betray your cause don't betray your family don't betray your country your friends don't betray yourself so survive but return with honor that was the phrase that came out of the out of u.s experience return with honor and i think i think what we're seeing here is i think pretty sensible 
practical advice and like I say almost permission granted from Kiev for their civilians to say look just you know take the passport we know and actually the statement if you read it they say we know you're not doing it willingly we know you're not actively deciding to become a russian citizen but as francis said you know you need these people to stay there you need you need some people to stay if if at all possible for what comes what comes after and to prove that that not everybody wants what is happening no matter what the the huge great kremlin propaganda machine will say and so i think this is it's an incredibly brave position to take they also said ukraine also said if you can get out and you want to then then do so so they're not suggesting they have to stay there some sort of partisans they're not saying that at all but i think this this idea that would be weighing heavily on the on the civilians minds about taking a russian passport so to be to be given permission to do that with with this sort of caveat that we know you don't really mean it that i think that is a very strong and powerful message and and i think it, it is almost the the civilian equivalent of of return with honor i was impressed to see that well, thank you very much dom francis and maidener early on i would just add to that dom and say that if you want to hear more about the appalling treatment of civilians in the occupied territories of ukraine i did a long-form interview with vadim shogan and therese ritter from dignity that's the danish institute against torture that was yesterday's podcast and you can listen to that i would a word of warning we talk about extreme violence and cruelty so just be aware of that before listening but we think it's an important thing to talk about the experience of those who came under occupation and what they went through so that's yesterday's podcast if you do want to listen Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols.